Could you please keep smacking your gum? Gas prices are looking pretty good right now. <coughs> hey, cough in my direction. I'm so glad I got a Zune instead of an iPod. Thanks, Microsoft. Star Wars is nothing without Jar Jar Banks. I'm really glad you paid me in change. Hey, uh, can I burn a copy of your Nickelback CD? I'm so glad I ate six chalupas. I wish my yard had more gophers. Stuff nobody says, right? Stuff nobody says. I'm real privileged to introduce you to Shana Powell. She's going to be bringing the word to us today. If you haven't yet met Shana, you should meet her soon. She's one of the newest additions to our pastoral leadership team. And she, along with Bob Schwan and her husband Tyler, will be leading in our missional community initiative, which you're going to begin hearing more and more and more about. And Shana has given herself to the ministry of Jesus Christ her entire career. It's going to look a little different now than it has for the last 12 years or so. You'll hear from her about that. But we're just thrilled to have Shana on the team with us here at Journey. And so would you please give a very warm Journey Church welcome to Shana Powell, please. Well, thank you. I was really excited about what God was doing in our life and ministry over the last few years because working with college students is just incredible. These people are making all the big decisions of their life, and to watch God grab a hold of one of them that's going in this direction and turn them around and change the whole trajectory of their life to following him has just been one of the greatest honors. And truly, watching them be so bold in their lives and ministry and the way they followed God has been inspiring to me, and it has motivated me to want to see some of the same things happen with my peers with our community here at Journey, and and even dreaming about how that could affect our valley, our state, and and who knows, even have a a little bit of an influence in the world. So that's what we're coming to do, and we are trusting God, and the mountain seems really high, but we feel like he's the one who always makes things happen anyway. So we're just really trusting God. Now some of you know this weekend is super significant, because it's the end of the Olympics, You've been watching the Olympics on your TV, and you've been rooting for uh, the United States as we compete, and you've been following the, the athletes, and for some of you, you're just glad it's over, and you can't wait for normal TV to get back on. But for the rest of us, we're really enjoying seeing our athletes compete. And my favorite part of the Olympics is the celebration at the end. Last night, watching the the men's relay as they broke the world record and just celebrated, that is just so fun for me to see. And the women's relay the night before with their dog piling on each other or, or the diving competition where they grabbed their diver and the whole team jumped in with all their clothes on as they threw him in the pool. I just love those moments. In fact, I know this is really weird, but I love them so much, I wish that in football, instead of getting a penalty for unsportsmanlike conduct for over-celebrating, I wish they could win an extra point. If there'd be like people there with the signs voting on how great their celebration was, and they could actually get an extra point for being awesome at celebrating, I just think it's just exciting. I love watching the exhilaration and the celebration on their faces. And we are... um, We are excited from our TV 
in our, on our couch. Think about what the parents are feeling in the audience. Some of us have enjoyed watching the parents, especially Allie Raisman's parents as she was the gymnast. You guys have seen this in the news. The parents are sitting in the audience watching their daughter compete and they're like moving like this as she does her moves um, because they know what she's going to do and they're just so rooting for her. They're so invested in her as she competes you see the other fans in the audience, just the super fans. You know, they've got their shirts that they had made supporting their favorite athlete. They've got their flags. They're waving. They look positively ridiculous because they're so invested in the competition and they're the person that they care about and how they're competing. So if you think about what the athlete feels as they compete, you back that up a step to what the parent feels or the person invested feels. There's another degree of separation to what we feel, just being you know, from, the, from America, rooting for the United States. I feel like we've trained ourselves to be pretty, pretty much spectators in so many things. We're pretty comfortable there. And, and you can see this even in our value of reality TV. This summer I was on a, our summer assignment with our students, and the staff would gather together on Monday night, men and women, and watch The Bachelor. Now this is a two-hour, or Bachelorette, this is a two-hour reality show that is just ridiculous. It is just the farthest thing from reality. And you watch these people try to fall in love, and you think, well, that's not going to work. And, and, and you're just, you know, whoever you think is your favorite person, you're rooting. And, and I don't know what your favorite reality show is, but they are super, super popular in our culture because we like to live vicariously. And... Um, Facebook is another way we live vicariously through each other. Well, there's a pretty significant cost to living vicariously. I experience it at the Bobcat football games. I don't know a ton, a ton about football, but I know enough to know what's going on. And I'll be sitting in the stands. I don't miss a game if I can help it. And there's a handful of those Bobcat football players that were involved in the ministry that I was a part of on MSU's campus. So I know them. I care about them. They're just neat guys. And so I'll, I'll be like, oh, there's my friend. And he will do something that I think is positively heroic. Like he busts through these big men and he runs down the field and he dives for this thing and he misses it and he falls on his belly and slides for a while, you know. And the audience is like, come on, man, you should have had that. I can't believe you missed that. You stink or something more colorful, you know, around me. And I'm just like, shut up. He's trying his best. Come on, you know. But when we are spectators, it's very easy to be critical. It's very easy to say, I could do that better. One of our friends um, around here is a coach, and someone didn't realize that this person was a coach, and they were talking about how dumb the coaches are and the, the decisions they make that are so stupid. And the coach was just like, yeah, those coaches are idiots, and didn't even tell the person that they were a coach. We just do that when we are spectators. It's so easy to be critical of the people playing the game. Another thing we can do is we can be bored. My family is a golfing family, and I like golf. But those of you who try to golf know this is a very frustrating sport. And one day you are just hitting it, and you feel like you could go on tour, and you're just excellent at golf. Everything is just just hitting. You're in sync. Then the next time you play, it's just like, who am I? What happened? You know, you just can't hit a thing. It's going everywhere. So what my parents would do with me and my brother to help us like golf is they taught us how to use the hand wedge. 
So the ball goes off where you don't want it to go. You pick it up and you toss it back on the fairway. That'd be the hand wedge. Or the foot wedge. You just kick it right back into the fairway. And it made golf a lot more fun for me. And sometimes we wouldn't keep score. Or, you know, if my ball wasn't doing what I wanted, I'd put it in my pocket and punish it for a hole and then pull it back out after it's had a timeout and we'd play again. And those were the kind of things we would do to make golf fun because golf is super frustrating. But even though I like golf, and to this day I'm much more competent, but even, even though I like golf, I do not like watching golf on TV. When I, and my dad can watch it all day long. But if I'm sitting down and, and there's golf on, I just think, oh, man, give me anything else to do. I'll do laundry. Like, just let me do something. This is horrible. And it's because I don't know who those players are. I don't, I don't care about the drama going on between this player and that player and how many this one has won and, and the tension of that. Oh, I can't believe the superhero person isn't winning. I, I just don't even care. I have no investment in the game. And therefore, it's completely boring to me, even though I understand it. And I think that in this living vicariously thing that we do in our culture, we, we can be very critical of those people trying to play, or we can be very bored about the whole process. The same things are true in our Christian life and our walk with God. If we are sitting on the sidelines, we can be very critical of people that are stepping out. And we can say, oh, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe that's how they're trying to reach people or or serve the valley. I I just can't believe that. Or we can be really bored. And we can say, oh, this is the abundant life you promised. I'd rather do laundry. This is pretty miserable. Well, there's a place in Scripture where God, Jesus, invites people in to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. We're going to look at it this morning. It's in Mark 6. You can open your Bibles or they're going to bring it up here on the screen in just a second. And I know you can read, but I'll read it for us just to keep us together. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had just sent them out to minister to people together. And they're coming back together to talk about how it went. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a huge crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke with the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. So what is happening? 
we read that story and we think, oh, it's a picnic and Jesus brought the food. But this is something much, much, much more subversive than this. This is really flipping what's going on in the world on its head. If you if you're, could glance just up in your Bible, you'll see that what just happened before this scene was Herod, the king, has just thrown a party. Herod is the ultimate, disgusting, selfish ruler. He's having a party in order to impress his friends. He has John the Baptist killed, Jesus' cousin. He brings in this gory head on a platter to show off to these people his power. He is disgusting. And that's just one scene. And if you imagine what his leadership was like of their nation, what it was like to be under his rule, you can just imagine these people are itching for a revolution. And they're hoping that Jesus will be their revolutionary leader. You see in, the, in John, as John accounts the same story, at the end they try to forcibly make him king. They want a leader so badly Jesus recognizes this when he says he sees them as a sheep, as sheep without a shepherd. Now, when you think of shepherd, if you're like me, I think of that painting that we see everywhere of Jesus with the flowing hair and the white robe and the little lamb over his shoulder. It's very tender. It looks very sweet. That's what I think of when I think of shepherd. But this is not the shepherd that Jesus is talking about here. In fact, sheep without a shepherd is a term that comes from Numbers 27. So it's a throwback to the early Old Testament. Let's look at that together. We're going to look at what is sheep without a shepherd. This is Moses. Now it's the end of Moses' life and he's praying, saying, God, don't leave the people alone. I've just taken them out of slavery in Egypt and I'm going to die. Who are you going to bring? He prays to the Lord. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. That first term is about guiding them as a nation. It's really a political leader. And that second term, going out and coming in, that's about battle. It's a military leader. Moses is praying for a king. And when Jesus looks at the community and he sees what they're living under, they're, they're too harassed and helpless. And he says, I see that you want a king. I know that you want a revolution. So what does he do? He teaches them and he feeds them. Does that not seem like the complete wrong response? They have such a need. They're living under this tyranny. But he teaches them and he feeds them. Well, this teaching business, this is what we're calling the, the declaration. He's declaring here. The sheep without a shepherd is the king that they're longing for. And he begins by declaring. He talks about the kingdom. What is coming? What is true of a person that lives in the kingdom of God? What is, what is their relationship like? What is the greatness of the kingdom of God? And he talks about the king. He is the rightful king, King Jesus. It's so subversive. It's not King Herod, it's King Jesus. It's not the kingdom of the values of the world. It's the kingdom of the values of God. And this is what he's teaching them about, and he's inviting them into the new kingdom. He's declaring the gospel. But the other thing he does is he displays the gospel. If God had wanted to just show off his power, 
He could have been like any number. He could have done any number of things. Just think of how creative we are in the movie industry when we want to make someone power, powerful. We have the X-Men. We have the Avengers. We have all of these fantastic fictional superheroes. Jesus could do anything. He was so, he is so powerful. He could have decided to fly up in the air and, and fly around and grab all the food and bring it down and give them this enormous banquet. He could have made it appear just like that. He could have done anything he wanted. We see places in the Bible where he had manna fall from heaven to feed them. He had whole flocks of quails descend upon the people. He had so many fish come into boats that it sunk the boats. He could have done anything like that. But he doesn't decide to do that. What he does when he sees the hunger and the need that they have is he takes something that's broken and that's wrong and he switches it back to right relationship with him. Hunger, sickness, loneliness, the brokenness and fallenness of this world, that's wrong. When he displays the gospel, he grabs that stuff that's wrong and he moves it right back into right relationship with him. That's why he heals the sick and he feeds the the hungry. He could, if he was just showing off his power, he could do it in a much more impressive way. This is a very subtle miracle, but a miracle nonetheless. So we are in a series, you know, you've been coming, you've been around, the shocking sayings of Jesus. The thing that shocks me about this passage that we just read is the disciples see the 5,000 families, that's a whole lot of people, they're hungry, and they come to Jesus, and they say, the people are hungry. Send them away so they can eat. Do they think Jesus doesn't know this? But they come, and they tell him. And he says, you feed them. You give them something to eat. Does Jesus not? I'm like, does he think there's carts of catered food coming in? This is way out in a remote place. It is, it is ludicrous what he says to them. But he says, you feed them. Go see what you have to start with. And they come with a couple rolls, really. It says loaves, but these are little guys. And then a couple fish. And these aren't the Montana fish that we pull out of our rivers and the pictures with this big fish in front that you want to have stuffed and put on your wall. Likely, this was a sardine, a little guy. This is the most popular commercial fish at the time that they would have had. So they have these little fish and these little loaves. It's really one lunch they have. And they bring it to Jesus for 5,000 families. But he wants to start with what they have. Again, he could have done this in any way, but he wants to start with what they have. That's shocker number one. Shocker number two is he wants to use us. And if that's not a shocker for you, maybe it should be. Sometimes we feel like, yes, God is so lucky to have me and my personality and my great gifts and my money, and I am incredible. And this church is very lucky to have me as well. If that's your situation, that's another day. But this is shocking business. The people that I love most in my life, that I would love to walk with the Lord, or that are going through crisis, that I want to minister to them, I wish God would choose any other method than me. I wish he would bring an angel of light. That would be so much more convincing. He's done that before. He's made donkeys talk. I tell you what, if a donkey is talking to your friend about Christ, that's way more convincing than you. The rocks could cry out. That's pretty impressive. I wish God would do some of those things that he's done in the past instead of using me. Because I know me. And I know how much of a hypocrite I can be. I know the stuff I've done that people have seen. I know me and the junk I bring and the inadequacy I have. I'm not super eloquent. I'm not the smartest person ever. They could stump me. 
I can get impatient with people. I wish God would use something other than me. But he wants to use us. We're his plan A. And in 2 Corinthians, we actually get some hope on this issue. This is what it says. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. But our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. He makes us supernaturally competent. We bring our little, our little meal, and he multiplies it as we move out. Incompetence is the starting place. That's the right resume to start with. That's the shocker number two. He starts with what we have. He wants to use us. Oh, I wish he had a different plan, but that's what he wants to do. So this partnership with God, that's what we're talking about. It's his plan, and he's the one that gives the power to accomplish it but he wants to use us. So you might be saying, great, if I'm ever in a field with 5,000 families and I have a lunch, I'll know what to do. But how does this apply to my job, my life, my kids, my school, my neighbors, my family? We aren't sitting around in a field saying we're hungry and we want a sardine sandwich. Well, there's another place where Jesus used the same language to talk about this. And I think it gives us a lot to hang our hats on as it relates to what he would like us to do now. And it's in Matthew 9. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Remember, turning things right that are broken. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The very same language. Then he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Clearly, this is not agricultural. Jesus looks at the people, and he sees us. He has compassion on us and what we give our lives to. And he says, I want to bring you into the kingdom. I want to revolutionize this system, and I want to be the rightful king. This is what we're made for. So he turns to his friends. He turns to his followers, and he says, go, bring that to the people. Be the workers in the harvest field. When you hear that, I know some of you, because you've said it to me personally, you said things like, we're excited that you guys are coming to do some mobilization around here, but you're going to make us go. I don't want to go. I want you to go do it. We want to delegate. I'm sure some of you are like, yes, we've hired this person to do this for us. That's great. Now I don't have to. It's not drudgery. Going with God, partnering with God in the mission is absolutely thrilling. And I could just gush for hours on things about this that are so thrilling, but I'm just going to pick a couple. One is, I trusted Christ my fourth year of college at Montana State. I was far from God, and he switched my life around. And my fifth year of school, I did have five, did not get out in four, I was... um, meeting some freshmen who'd asked us to come talk with them about Christ. So I was in their dorm room, and I didn't know that much. I'd only known Christ for a few months, so I brought a friend with me that was more mature because I thought if I got stumped, I would just look at Susan. So we went in, and we talked to these girls about Christ, and they, were, they weren't in a place where they wanted to change their whole life, but we had this great conversation about the kingdom and about the king and how they could enter into a relationship with him. And it was so much fun. 
And the girls said, thanks for coming. And I don't even remember whatever happened with them, if they even got plugged in. It, it was a while ago. But I just remember how thrilling that was. Susan and I got in the car. We drove to our staff girl's house. We were so pumped up. We were, it's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. We're ringing her doorbell. And we're jumping up and down on the landing because we just can't wait for her to get to the door because we just got to tell her about how thrilling that was. There was no drudgery. It was not like, I've got to do this thing. It was positively thrilling. And I tell you that all of the swagger of the party scene, all of that stuff, there is nothing that compares with the living God using you to influence someone that you know and love. There is just nothing I would trade. Another story. Freshman. She comes from Billings. She is a train wreck. She has trusted Christ in high school, but she has just tried to kill herself. She has an eating disorder that's debilitating. She is stunningly beautiful, and she is using that in all the wrong ways in life and in college. So I meet her because she wants, to, she wants to get out of this sin that she's so enslaved to. And we start learning about the Bible together. I'm discipling her. I'm helping her learn how to be an influence in the lives of others. She starts to walk with God. She starts to see people who don't know Christ come to Christ. She starts to build into other women. And she, she really grows. And just last month, she sent me an email. She's a teacher now. Um, and she's influencing her school and those kids that she teaches. She's mentoring women in high school through her church over in Billings. And she's doing so well. And there is something in me that just feels like, I don't know, like I imagine you parents feel when your kids do something awesome. You're just like so satisfied. And you're like, that is so worth it. There's such a deep joy about seeing people soar with God. This is so awesome. Now imagine you're one of those disciples. And Jesus, I don't know, does he have a twinkle in his eye? I'm totally imagining here. But he says, bring me your little sardines and your little rolls, and let's do this thing. I have no idea what those men felt. Were they reaching into the basket and the, and the bread was growing and they were watching it? I don't know. Was it just like every time they reached in, there was more there? But the power of God is working right there in their very hands as they are feeding these people. I don't believe for a second they said, oh my gosh, i got to pass out the food. I don't believe for a second. I believe this was positively thrilling as they got to watch God work as they moved their little hands back and forth to those 5,000 people. That's the bonus shocker. It's not in there. But the bonus shocker is they love it. I just can't imagine they don't. And then they get to go off with this, this king. They get to be right with him. So if you're sitting in the stands at the Olympics last night... And one of the American relay racers pulls a hamstring and he's out. And God comes up to you and says, I want you to fill in for him. I don't think we have any Olympic level sprinters in the room. So you're thinking, I can't do it. But what if he said, I will give you a supernatural power to race against the fastest men in the world, Bolt. You'll be our anchor man. I bet most of us would still say, all right, God, you're God, but really? No, I'm just going to sit here. But maybe some of you would do it. And then you would take the baton and you would run across and maybe you'd beat him. And you would would have been a part of the team that demolished the world record. You would have been a part of the team that were the fastest men ever. How thrilling would that be? And I feel like that's the exact same thing God is saying to us. I will supernaturally empower you to be a life changer. And we say, eh, I got my own thing going, God. But what if you want to? I think if Jesus walked into our valley today, it would be so much like Matthew 9. 
I think he would see our lives. I think he would see our friends. I think he would see our families, our coworkers, our neighborhoods. And he would have compassion on us. I think he would say, those people in Gallatin Valley are harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. They give their lives to little gods. They are enslaved to image maintenance, their jobs, their families, their children are their gods, their private sins choke out the life in them. I think he would look at us, our valley, and he would say, I have compassion on you. And I think he would turn to us, his followers, his disciples, and he'd say, friends, the harvest is plentiful. He's the one who grows the harvest. It's not up to us. But I think he would say, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers in this valley are few. I think he would invite us to pray that God would use us in the harvest as we go out to be workers. So how do you do this? Remember the first shocker is that he wants to use us. I would say, are you usable? Is there some sin in your life that you are so enslaved to that you couldn't go? Maybe today would be the day that you draw a line in the sand and you say, no more. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get whatever help I need to get out of that. This will no longer rule my life. Maybe you're unwilling to surrender. You're like, that could mess up my image. I do not want to do that, God. You can have this portion of my life, but not this portion of my life. Maybe you need to be in greater surrender to God. Remember, he starts with what we have. Well, what do we have? Maybe we need to pray and ask God to give us eyes of compassion for the valley, that we could see the valley like he does, that we could see what he's given us, that we could leverage it, give it back to him, and let him multiply it. Remember, our confidence, our competence comes from God. The last two days, um, Thursday and Friday, we had the Leadership Summit here, and you've been hearing so much about it. It was so great. It definitely delivered on all its promises, and I'll be there for every year they let me. But at the very end, Bill Hybels, that sneaky guy, stole my, my main talk tonight. He stole my point, so I stole his application step. He had this card that he gave us all, and if you were there, um, he, we all read it out loud. But what he was saying is, get in the mission with God. And he challenged us every morning to get up and pray this prayer. And the heart of it is, um, today I joyfully offer you, God, my love, my heart, my talents, my energy, my creativity, my faithfulness, my resources, and my gratitude to whatever you would want me to do. And he challenged us to pray this every day for a month. And I'm going to, and I invite you to join me. Just asking the Lord, where would you use me? How would you use me? The last thing is he multiplies us as we step out. So what stops you from stepping out? Is it that sin that you won't let go of? The cost is so high. Is it that you don't think you're qualified? Have you ever looked around here and said, someone around here ought to do blank. Someone around here ought to minister to these people. God, I wish someone would reach my neighbor. Man, I wish someone would get my kid excited about this. You know, do you ever feel like that? I wish someone would blank. Maybe that's something God is going to use you to do. And you feel unqualified. So you'd like one of the pros to do it. But I say, God is your competence. And maybe that could be something God would use you to do. And time. Time is always an issue. Maybe we could learn to do the same things we do, but just differently. That this wouldn't become a program that we do, that we fit into our schedule, but it would become part of everything we're doing. That we'd be partnering with God everywhere we go.
Friends, this is what we're about. This is what we're about in the Christian life. And we're going to go to prayer right now, and I'm going to give you some time to talk with God about what might be stirring in your heart right now. Because remember, we don't want to be living vicariously. We want to hear things. We want to act. So go ahead and set your things aside and pray with me to the king. Father, you are great. This is your plan that you have in the world to transform lives. It is your plan to make your kingdom famous, to let your king be known, King Jesus, the true king. God, the fact that you invite us at all in is shocking. But you are extending your hand and you are saying, partner with me as I redeem the world, as I redeem lives. Father, would you put your hand or your finger on things in our lives? Is there sin that we are enslaved to? What will it take to move into freedom? convict us of places we try to be our own adequacy. We want our resume or our skills to make us competent when your task is impossible. You are our only competence. Would you convict us of the sin of self-reliance? know that you want to see harvesters. You are, you are the one who makes the harvest ripe, white for harvest. You are changing lives. All around us, you're on the move. Our friends, our family, our coworkers, the people we're around all the time. It's no accident. You're moving. Help us partner with you. Give us eyes to see your great love for the people around us for this valley Lord I I know that you're saying something unique to each one of us let us be people that respond that don't just hear things but that act on them Lord you are creating a great plan you are a great God you're the true king help us to be kingdom bringers throughout the Gallatin Valley, Lord, that you would be famous, that you would be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.